Good morning, everybody. So uh, that song pretty much summarized the lesson this morning. We'll be in Second Peter chapter 1 again in just a moment. Uh, a couple of things I forgot to announce this morning. So Cody is not here. He texted me that uh, him and the kids are not feeling too well this morning, so they're home. Uh, Glenn told me that with Antoinette, uh, their, two, their two kids are at home not feeling well as well, which is why Antoinette and the kids aren't here. I uh, just want to make sure to announce those things. And Another really encouraging thing is Stephen was very eager to come to the assembly this morning. And um, For those of you who are a part of this group, you know that Stephen has been um, working through some things, and um, for him to get to a very encouraged place to be earnest about being here is, is an amazing answer to prayer. We're just so thankful about that. So we're going to be continuing a series that's a six-lesson series. We're on lesson number four now, and Cody and I have been just going back and forth teaching through Second Peter chapter 1. Uh, really, verses 1 through 13 um, is, is our emphasis. And we are at a place where we're thinking about specific applications to make that uh, I'm going to try to emphasize the external applications to be made here with perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. But I want to review before we get into the applications of the lesson, kind of reviewing some things that we've been talking about so far. So what have we emphasized so far in this text? In Cody's first lesson, one of the things I think he really emphasized really well in referring to it as like a recipe and God's commands here being like a secret sauce that this section is filled with incredible promises that give us a very tangible recipe to follow that guarantees, by Peter's words, abundant entrance into Christ's kingdom. This section contains promises and instructions that are so clear and so tangible. This section has been vital in parts of my life where I was really struggling to gain stability in my own faith and overcome sin and temptation that was ensnaring me. Just the tangible, the simple, the concise, and magnificent promise of this section is so incredibly helpful. And God has proven his reliability and his power to transform people who are humbled because they realize how wrecked they are by corruption. We looked at that in the second lesson with God's divine nature and how important it is to see the glory of his nature in contrast to the corruption of the world that we can see the promise of partaking in his nature as something exceedingly precious and magnificent, something we want to apply all diligence towards. And then we talked about how growth, it's important to understand that growth in these things is an organic process, not a mechanical process. Mechanical would be like welding things together artificially. Organic growth would be like plants that grow in the ground when they're watered and they slowly come up out of the soil or like a baby slowly growing in its mother's womb. And the meaning of that is really that growth is an internal, internal, and patient work that's accomplished through faith in God's grace. And with these external applications, just the last thing by, by means of introduction, Cody emphasized internal applications last week of faith, virtue, uh, faith, virtue, knowledge, and self-control. These external applications aren't isolated things that are only being done externally. Think about it like a branch from a vine, like a grapevine or something like that. 
If you cut a branch from a vine, it can't bear fruit, and it can't even continue to survive. The idea is external applications ultimately are useless, dead, and can't be fruitful. If we aren't approaching these things in a way rooted in faith, in assurance in who God is, trust in him, if we aren't striving to apply self-control and virtue and knowledge into our faith, these qualities are not going to be able to be fruitful without those things. So these applications are going to strive to approach them still thinking both externally, but also acknowledging the importance of internally applying faith to them. So steadfastness, perseverance, and endurance. Let's read verses 1 through 7 again. That whole section, and then after reading, um, the emphasis is going to begin in the middle of verse 6 and into verse 7. So 2 Peter chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 1 and read through verse 7 again to kind of catch back up to where we are. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence, in your faith supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and your brotherly kindness, love. So perseverance um, in the ESV, the English Standard Translation, is translated steadfastness. There's other places in the Bible where this same word is translated as endurance, and these all kind of communicate really the same thing. But this quality of being persevering or steadfast, I think it's helpful to see that this is really the glue that binds everything here together. Without having perseverance, endurance, and steadfastness, none of these qualities are going to be able to grow. There's not going to be fruitfulness. There's not going to be effectiveness in our faith. So really, everything hinges on learning how to be persevering in our faith. I think a definition that might help approach these things, perseverance is ultimately a commitment that's tested by pain, by pressure, and passing time. So passing time would be like delayed gratification, Pressure be like being like pressure to compromise, change views, change position, and pain being maybe just grief, persecution, difficulty brought on through commitment. I think there's three general ways to visualize these things, maybe a little bit more. There might be more, and uh, if you think about more, I'd be open to hearing what, what your thoughts are. But I think the first one is steadfastness, perseverance, and endurance are applied when we're waiting for a promise to be fulfilled, despite delay or distractions that can carry us away from anticipating that promise or seeking fulfillment by means of promise. This would be like uh, struggling with sins like sexual lust, pornography, like Cody brought up last time. The need for self-control is to wait for gratification or satisfaction through God's methods and trusting 
that there's fulfillment God's way rather than our own way, right? And so steadfastness is waiting for a promise despite the passing of time, delay, or distractions that can carry us away from it. The second would be standing in place. So like sometimes you'll see the exhortation in scripture to stand firm. And so it takes perseverance to stand in place despite being pushed and pressured to change position or to move away from conviction. So this might be in the form of societal pressure, maybe pressure even being in the minority of a belief or a stance or conviction and really giving in or compromising because of external pressures or even again with sin, having internal pressure from temptation and then compromising a stance because of just the pressures that come from our own personal desires. The third way to think about perseverance is running a set course. Do you see this like in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, where it says, Therefore, having so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. So there's a way of running a set course and continuing in it despite weariness. This would come in the form of making very positive applications and not compromising those applications when it's difficult. So this might come in the form of loving the brethren, prioritizing relationships with brethren. This might come in the form of commitments to evangelism or relationships with people in the world that we're trying to utilize for the gospel's sake. And relationships always come with difficulties of self-denial. It takes our energy. It takes our time. And it's, it's, it can all be very taxing and it can wear us out to the point where we become discouraged and we become distracted. Um, so steadfastness is continuing to run with endurance despite weariness that comes from it. Um, just to, I think, illustrate this, look at Psalm 86. God's word is filled with extraordinarily rich illustrations of perseverance. It's difficult to know where exactly to even begin or go to try to focus on this point. Um, The scriptures reference the prophets. James 5 references Job. Obviously, we have the endurance of the Lord himself and his ministry. We have the endurance of people like the Apostle Paul. We have the endurance of others in the Old Testament that aren't even referenced in the New Testament. But the Psalms, I think, are very focused uh, prayers by people who are struggling with the same things in principle that we struggle with that put our perseverance to the test. So we're going to anchor in this point in Psalm 86 for just a moment, and I just want to make a few applications from Psalm 86. I want to start just reading verses 1 through 8 and make some simple points from this psalm. So notice at the heading, this is a prayer of David. So verse 1, Acline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am afflicted and needy. Preserve my soul, for I am a godly man. O you, my God, save your servant who trusts in you. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you I cry all day long. Make glad the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer and give heed to the voice of my supplications. In the day of my trouble, I shall call upon you, for you will answer me. There is no one like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. Really the first and main point with perseverance from Psalm 86, perseverance is a growing quality, right? 
It's easy to think that perseverance is only valuable if it's perfect. But the reality is there may be things we're struggling to have perseverance with and we're trying to figure out how can I even learn to have more endurance in my life in these specific ways. And I think really the key is growing in perseverance exposes how needy we are, but also at the same time areas where we can rely more abundantly on God's grace filling those needs. So look at verse 1. I find this very amazing about David, and I think this also made him a man after God's own heart. David was a great king. He was a great warrior, a conqueror of nations. David was somebody who was even famous for battles that he had won against extraordinary foes like Goliath, people who are much stronger physically than he he was, people who are better equipped. But what made David a man after God's own heart is despite these things that God God had done to empower David, when David was at his best with the Lord, here's how he referred to himself, afflicted and needy. Is that how you would refer to yourself? Would you even be maybe even embarrassed to refer to yourself as a needy person? Usually that's not something that comes with positive connotation, right? To be referred to as somebody who's very needy or has great needs. But in David's relationship with God, that is very honestly just the way that he saw himself and it was very realistically the position that he really was in. And so perseverance puts us to the test by showing us just how needy we are so that we can learn to not put trust in ourselves, to realize that we are not as strong as we may think we are or hope we are, but rather that we are actually in a position of great weakness and need while God himself abundantly supplies those needs. Look at verse 3. David understands that the position he's in requires greater work from God, greater grace. And so he's calling on God to fulfill his promises towards him and to be gracious to him, to be generous in a way that in in some ways is unwarranted except by the promises and commitment God had made to David. Perseverance, it goes back to the beginning of 2 Peter chapter 1 when he says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ. Perseverance is a key application that gives us a much more meaningful, tangible, encouraging appreciation for God's commitment to his promises in spite of our inadequacies and failures. Look at verse 5. David to endure is reminding himself of God's goodness, that God is ready to forgive, that God is abundant in loving kindness, to everyone who calls upon him. One thing we'll see more of in a moment, I think one of the biggest struggles with perseverance is while weaknesses are exposed in my commitment to God and my relationship with him, at the same time, very often, my deepest insecurities are also exposed. Something I've been appreciating in marriage is just how destructive to a relationship open insecurities are that are left unchecked or that are not seen, noticed, and then put on guard for. And so David in his relationship with God is recognizing that I need God's forgiveness and mercy to overcome obstacles being exposed while I'm striving to please him and struggling in doing so. Look at verse 11 and 12. 
Perseverance also teaches us the value of learning and doing God's will, especially when it's painful and even causes us to suffer. So look at verse 11. David says, Teach me your way, O Lord. I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I will give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with all my heart and will glorify your name forever. Perseverance teaches us that God's will gives greater joy than when we focus on our own will or on our own ambitions or commitments. The thing with perseverance is this is not so much as us being faithful to our own commitments apart from the Lord. This is about us uniting our will with God's. For David, it's not that he was asking for God to help empower him to keep his own oaths, right? What he was wanting is to learn how to be more faithful to the things that God had called him to as a king, as a servant of God's will. So we're going to see in just a moment godliness, brotherly affection, and love. Those are things that God is calling us to put our commitment towards. And again, this is about us persevering in uniting ourselves with God's priorities, God's commitments, and depending on him when those things become difficult for us to endure in our commitment towards. Look at verse 13 through 16. It's kind of touching on some things from the first point. It says, For your loving kindness towards me is great, and you have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. O God, arrogant men have risen up against me, and a band of violent men have sought my life, and they have not set you before them. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and truth. Turn to me and be gracious to me. O grant your strength to your servant and save the son of your handmaid. Again, perseverance exposes insecurities, weaknesses, and also sin. But as these things are drawn out in our focus on God, these things also exalt God's love, his power, and his mercy. That God is committed to us even when we don't deserve it. That God is powerful when we're weak. That God sustains us when we're weary. That God is providentially proactive to help us when we call on him. That he is near to the brokenhearted and crushed in spirit. And so perseverance helps us rely more on the Lord, to trust more in his promises. And it helps us put our knowledge of God into very practical application, even when we may be helpless to do other things besides even just laying our hearts bare before God, praying for his help, and earnestly seeking his guidance when we just don't know what to do. So perseverance leads to godliness. Godliness is kind of an interesting uh, and challenging term in that it can be difficult to separate some words from one another, like righteousness and godliness. I've asked some of you this week, what are your thoughts on what would make godliness entirely distinct from something like righteousness? Um, Those things can be hard to navigate. But godliness, I think just a very simple way of thinking about it and how you see in scripture, is godliness is internal reverence and awe of God that ends up being expressed internally. So godliness is not only internal reverence, and it also isn't only outward expression. Think about this with the Pharisees in Jesus' day. Did they look like godly people? By appearances, to many people, they probably looked like great examples of godliness. But were they truly godly people? No, they focused on the outward 
shallow expressions of godliness while not having at all internal awe and reverence for God. So godliness and its applications are rooted in having awe-filled amazement, wonder, and respect toward God. Turn your Bibles to Malachi chapter 1. This is the last prophet of the Old Testament, so right before Matthew, if uh, you're unfamiliar with the book of Malachi. Immediately before Matthew, you'll find Malachi, a short three-chapter book. And while Malachi doesn't use the word godliness, as New Testament terms are demonstrated so often in the Old Testament, godliness is described in Malachi in these verses we're going to be looking at. Look at Malachi chapter 1, verse 6, verse 11, and verse 14. Malachi chapter 1, verse 6. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? Go down to verse 11. For from the rising of the sun, even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense is going to be offered to my name, and a grain offering that is pure. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. And look at verse 14. But cursed be the swindler who has a male in his flock and vows it, but sacrificed a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is feared among the nations. So I think some helpful and approachable ways to think about the concept of godliness. Look at back in verse 6. I think God gives us two illustrations that help make godliness a more approachable concept. He says, a son honors his father. Godliness is like a son who looks up to and admires their father in a good sense. And because of their respect for their father, they want to please them. They want to be like them. They want, to be, they want to make sure that their name and reputation is being protected. They're impressed with who their, who their parent is and things they do. And the second illustration is like a servant to their master. And I think especially when he references himself as a king, a servant toward a king. So think about somebody who's serving a king, and again, their concern is not just the service itself, but the honor and the majesty of the person they're serving. And in both of those illustrations, if a servant to a king is genuinely concerned about the honor of his master, if a son is genuinely concerned about the honor of his parent, there are going to be things that they're going to do to please their parent. There are ways they're going to think about their parent. There are ways they're going to behave themselves away from their parent or their master that cannot be accomplished only by explicit instruction and command. Because the faith that sees the honor of God will always act with greater heartfelt submission and awe and devotion than those who are simply trying to serve God by works absent of love, admiration, and awe that is inherent within godliness. So I want to ask some questions that I think can help make this more introspective and practical. In the context of Malachi 1, he brings out that they're wondering, well, how are we despising your name? How are we failing to honor you? And he brings out they're offering things that God had instructed and they're treating it like this great inconvenience. They're offering animals and animals in in an Old Testament context, God commanded those things to be unblemished. But they're offering leftovers and in verse 12, treating the altar of the Lord as a tiresome thing. 
How do you treat inconvenient doctrine or instruction? Things that might by appearance not even seem relevant. I remember in Alabama, uh, this maybe would have been now five or six years ago, there was somebody I was studying the Bible with, uh, and we studied for a very long time. He was really interested in reading the Bible with me. But whenever we would bring up something like baptism, he would actually get angry. Now, when we wouldn't talk about things like that, he would get so emotional about things we would read in God's word, he would actually cry while we were seated with each other as we would read. And then we'd get to baptism again at, in a scripture where it was being talked about or where it was relevant. And at one point he said, Bryant, we can study anything in the Bible. I don't ever want you to bring up baptism ever again. I want you to think about that, okay? Imagine with Eva, my wife, if I told her, Eva, you know what? I'll talk about anything with you that I already agree on, that I already believe, that I already enjoy. But if you ever think we can talk about anything that you want to talk about or that you enjoy or that interests you, when I don't already agree with it or enjoy it, forget about it. We're not going to bring those things up. Is that a real relationship or a working one? It's fake. Listen, it might seem subtle what that person said, but you know what he was clearly saying? His relationship with God is fake. And that's exactly what was going on here in Malachi. Our relationship with God, godliness leads us to do the things that matter the most that really show whether or not we actually see who God is. That's proven when we especially do things that for us are inconvenient or just doesn't seem very relevant or the instruction just is going to cause us to have to suffer or sacrifice in some way if we're never willing to be inconvenienced by God's word. You don't understand or apply godliness. It's proven when we do what is inconvenient, what is difficult, or what requires sacrifice. And again, it's based in our internal attitude toward God, and that's the heart of what God was getting to here. What they were doing externally, it related to their view internally. How about your speech? Is godliness expressed in your language? 2 Timothy 2.16 says, But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. Godliness, in so many ways, is like having an awareness of God at all times. Do you think in your conversations or things you've said this past week, have those things been pleasing to God? Has your language been glorifying to God? Has the subject of conversation been glorifying to God? Listen, there are certain things that we just honestly shouldn't even talk about. There are words that shouldn't even come out of our mouths. And a very simple, fundamental way of thinking about godliness and language, how do you use the name of God in your language? Is God's name just a casual exclamation? Would you say, oh no, but replace that no with God's name? Listen, the Ten Commandments, God fundamentally was teaching the nation godliness when he said, you will not take my name in vain. And in Malachi chapter 1, verse 6, 11, and 14, it says, My name is to be held in reverence. And I think that's more than just the way that his name is said with our lips, but that's still an important application, is we should be ashamed of ourselves. 
for using God's name in such a light and common way when his name is to be held in reverence. So is godliness expressed, is it evident in your speech? Do you ever suffer socially for God? 2 Timothy 3 verse 12, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We're not living in a world concerned with the honor of God. We're not living in a culture of people who are concerned about reverencing God's name and exalting him in all that is done. And so very naturally then, if God is truly our father who we are striving to honor, we're striving to protect the honor of his name, well, the natural conclusion is that's not going to be well received or appreciated by everybody that we're around. And so it's not that every single day there needs to be constant suffering in our circumstances, but I think the question needs to be asked, do you ever suffer socially for God? Are you willing to suffer socially for God? And finally, with godliness, it's what motivates striving to do everything in our lives more and more to the glory of God. You know, godliness is not always about doing some grand new thing that takes this huge chunk of new time that you don't have. Godliness is what motivates doing everything that you're already doing, but seeking to do it more to the glory of God, refining it so that it's more pleasing to the Lord, done with more humility, more kindness, more thoughtfulness of God. It's also what equips us to endure through temptation. Nobody sins thinking about the glory and majesty of God in the process of sin. Nobody sits at their computer and gets led into the process of watching pornography while God is very presently in their mind and they're thinking about the honor and majesty of God. Godliness both protects our hearts, but it motivates striving to do things in a way more pleasing to him. The greatest expressions, though, of godliness are brotherly affection and love. And then remember, this is saying that this is at the end of supplementing these qualities into our faith. And so, again, this brotherly affection is not just something that is done emptily, half-heartedly. This is done through faith in God and assurance of who he is, remembering his work like Psalm 86, recognizing that there will be difficulties and struggles that will test perseverance, but that God will provide. And as we see God's deliverances, as we, as we see God's faithfulness, and as that gives us a higher view of God, then that leads us to these commitments ultimately that God simply calls us to. Brotherly kindness, brotherly affection, just very simply is focused on brethren. Other places where that's translated is like Romans chapter 12, verse 10, where he says, but be devoted to one another in brotherly love, show preference to one another in honor. Brotherly love there in Romans 12.10 is the same Greek word that's translated there. So just again, very simply, brotherly love is focused on brethren, whereas love's greater application extends beyond that. Something really simple to point out here, I would think that brotherly kindness would actually come last and love would come first because it seems like brotherly kindness is very clearly an expression of love. But I think the order teaches us that as we focus on loving the brethren, it equips us also to have a deeper love for others outside of the brethren. And so I think the process is important here. 1 Peter uh, chapter 4, 8 through 10. Look at this very briefly. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 8 through 10. Um, Just again, how 
how God calls us to focus on brotherly affection, brotherly kindness. And we'll make a couple of points from this section. So here it says, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. I just want to say first, I see these instructions thriving and growing and being applied in the congregation here. And that just constantly is a great encouragement to me. When people ask about the work here, one thing I tell them is that the congregation here is continuously showing effective doing of God's word and not hearing only. But there's always ways we can be growing in these things. And so this means proactively looking for ways to build more focused and meaningful relationships with brethren in the church. Notice verse 8 again. He says, above all. So here's your highest priority above everything else. Preserve fervent love toward the brethren. This covers a multitude of sins. So we need to be constantly looking for ways to have more focused and meaningful relationships with the brethren. Again, this is a fundamental expression of godliness. And hospitality is a fundamental necessity in this application. Look at verse 9. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. There's ways where obviously that can be challenging in our current climate. But there's just creative ways we have to think about involving ourselves in each other's lives. Hospitality is an irreplaceable way of connecting with one another. It's not just about utilizing times when we're together at assemblies, but it's looking for ways that we can invest time and energy into each other throughout the week. And again, these are things that I see progressively being applied in in really encouraging ways among the brethren here, and even I are shown hospitality by the brethren in greatly encouraging ways. We just have to be looking for ways to put each other in the lives of other brethren, put ourselves in the lives of other brethren, put ourselves in each other's homes, bringing others into our own home. Hospitality cultivates a great sense of belonging. We'll see that with a final passage we'll look at in just a moment. But serving also implies taking initiative. So if you look at verse 10 again, as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another. Serving implies taking initiative to seek out ways to be helpful and encouraging to other brethren. You know, and this again can be done in a variety of ways. Uh, It's so encouraging when I talk to Paul about um, the loss of his brothers recently and he brings up Jason and Marie writing cards to him. When I visit John Doyle and he tells me about the cards that Jason and Marie have been sending to him. And so there's just, there's ways that we can creatively look for when we are looking for ways to involve ourselves in helping and encouraging others. And those small acts of kindness and thoughtfulness, they really matter to somebody who may be discouraged, hurting, or is in dire need of just help. It helps cultivate a constant sense of mutual fellowship, that we aren't just loosely associated with one another, and say hi, hello a couple hours every week, and then we're gone out of each other's lives and carried into the busyness of the world. But that there are threads connecting us that are being deliberately preserved and bound together through our activity toward each other done through faith through the week. So we need to be taking initiative 
through godliness, through faith. We need to be taking initiative to find ways to be helpful to one another and bear each other's burdens. So connecting this also to perseverance, you know what the greatest reward of perseverance is? It's being able to carry heavier loads with the brethren. That's the greatest reward of perseverance. It's being willing to focus less and less on myself, focus less and less on my desires, and have a more open heart to carrying the heavy burdens that other brethren are bearing in their own lives as well, and to do so with joy and endurance. So love, Luke 14, 12 through 14. If you'll turn in your Bibles there, please. Um, What I've written on the board here, I just can't stress this enough. This is not only one of Jesus' most shocking instructions. Personally, I find this to be the most challenging thing Jesus ever commanded. In fact, every time I read it, it always feels completely out of my reach. Um, And that can either be discouraging or it can be encouraging to look for practical ways of applying. We'll, We'll talk more about that here after reading it. So Luke chapter 14 Jesus is in the house of a Pharisee and eating with him. And as was happening every time Jesus ate with a Pharisee, this was a very uncomfortable meal because Jesus brings up things that are very difficult and challenging to the people hosting him. Luke 14, 12 through 14. And he also went on to say to the one who had invited him, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors. Otherwise, they may also invite you in return, and that will be your repayment. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed since they do not have the means to repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. What would it take to even do something like this? You know, something I think worth noting in verse 12 Did you notice the first category of person he says not to invite? He says, don't invite your friends. Do you know what that means about the people in verse 13? These are strangers. These crippled, lame, and blind people, they're people you've never met before. And you maybe have been in circumstances before where you're in a place that it's like uncomfortably nice and you can't wait to leave. Why don't you think about what would it take to actually find people like this and bring them into your home? You need to be determined ahead of time that I'm doing this completely for the purpose of being the one serving. You're going to have to go to these people. You're going to have to convince them that this is for them, that they belong in your home, that they should come to your home. People you don't know can be very hesitant to come and spend time with somebody that they're not already familiar with. And so there has to be some convincing. Well, okay, I mean, what if it's somebody who's lame or crippled? Well, you're going to have to carry them back into your home. Well, what if they are paralyzed from the neck down? You're going to have to feed them once they get into your home. You're going to have to talk to them when they're in your home. You're going to have to give up this idea that your home has to be this fancy, perfectly put-together place And just be okay with the mess that's created or the uncomfortable things that are said by people that aren't already righteous and well put together. Or just awkward conversations as they open up about difficulties in their lives or horrible backgrounds they've come from. 
And all the while, you are trying to be gentle and kind and be a servant. I want to think about Peter for a second in Luke 22, 28 through 30. This is one of my favorite things in the Gospel of Luke is actually this, this connection. The disciples just got done arguing about who's the greatest among them, and then Jesus follows with something that just seems unwise to say when they're already struggling with pride. He says, You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. How could Jesus say that? when they just got done debating with one another who's the greatest one among them. And he says, oh yeah, you'll be exalted all right. You'll sit on thrones. He proceeds to tell Peter that he's just about to deny him. Their world is about to come crashing down completely. And Jesus saying this was going to equip Peter's perseverance. Because what Peter was about to understand in the most crucial and devastating way is that when Jesus told that parable about inviting the crippled, the lame, and the blind, you know who Peter was? Peter was just some crippled stranger that Jesus had done an astonishing amount of work to help him understand, you belong here. Hospitality with God is very different than our hospitality. When Jesus talks about a dinner invitation, God's hospitality is not come for my satisfaction and be on your way. God's invitation to dinner is always about having a permanent place of adoption. That you don't belong out there anymore. I'm trying to convince you to stay here forever. Peter would understand by faith what Jesus had truly done for him And do you think that would have changed his reflections on that difficult instruction from Luke 14? Do you think it would have changed his perspective to help him refine principles and applications? Because listen, in Matthew chapter 7, when Jesus said, if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out, throw it away. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off, throw it away. To my view here, everybody seems to have both of their eyes and both of their hands, right? So we understand that Jesus said something that we have to refine it and hold it and learn how to get principles and applications from this thing that Jesus says that on first appearance can can seem unapproachably extreme. If we really understand by faith who God is, the abundance of his mercy... What we'll do with Luke 14, verses 12 through 14, is not be overwhelmed and discouraged and think, how could God ever tell me to do something like that? It will be, God, help me. And just the littleness of what I offer and just how unworthy it is, just please use it. Please be pleased with it. And that is the product of 2 Peter chapter 1, is the love that goes above and beyond what the world could ever apply or imagine without God. And that's where we'll end the lesson for this morning. So appreciate everybody's attention so much and patience this morning with the lesson. If there's anything that we can do for you, if your desire is to put on Christ this morning and to have an eternal relationship with him, 
There's no better time than when the saints are gathered together and the word of God is being read and taught and songs are being sung that put good things of God in our minds. And so if there's anything that needs to be done by way of coming forward for the purpose of salvation um, or for making needs known or confessing sin before the congregation, then this is an appropriate time as we stand and sing our invitation song.